My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am here live with Dr. Emily Taylor. Uh, Emily and I have known each other for for quite a while now. We kind of came up in the same cohort of herpetologists, if you will, um, going through graduate school at approximately the same time. And when I was developing the idea for Snake Talk, I developed kind of an initial list of people that I'd like to have and as guests and, and to interview. And Emily was on that uh, initial list. Um, and we are going to really cover a lot of ground today. <clears throat> um, we are going to talk about everything from research on physiology and thermal biology of snakes uh, to service and some of the work that Emily does to uh you know, better the, the communities within which she lives. And then finally, we are going to talk a little bit about uh, the topic of women in herpetology, as Emily has a manuscript that is in press and should be coming out soon on that topic. So uh, Dr. Taylor is a, a professor at Cal Poly San Luis Expo in California, and, and she's lucky to uh, to live in just a, a beautiful part of the country, um, not too, too far north of, of Santa Barbara and, and south of San Francisco, um, very close to Big Sur and um, some other kind of beautiful public land areas on the uh, central coast of California. And uh, she is a professor there, as I mentioned, and she runs the Physiological Ecology of Reptiles Lab. And she does a whole variety of things through that lab, you know, teaching, um, does quite a bit of, of research, and, and her research focuses around environmental physiology with reptiles, um, and, and more specifically on things such as thermal biology, how and also things like how snakes deal with water issues living in desert environments. And we'll talk about uh, some of that today. Um, she also does uh, quite a bit of service, as I mentioned, and most of that service deals uh, with snakes and um, helping people stay safe in snake country, as well as um, protecting snakes from, from being killed. So Emily, I seem to remember a conversation that we had many years ago uh, where you were maybe a little bit like me, um, meaning uh, you didn't, you weren't one of these kids that the minute you were born, you were instantly into snakes and just had this constant, uh, you know, obsession. It's something that you kind of got into later in life. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I, if I remember right, you're kind of more of an onset uh, adult snake person. 
Uh, yes, like- I love that. I'm definitely an adult onset snake person. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't particularly like or or hate, or I wasn't afraid of snakes growing up. But I actually have this memory of when I was running cross country in high school and went around a bend, and there was a what I now know it was a California king snake in the middle of the path, and I didn't have time to do anything except jump over it, and it gave me an adrenaline rush because I was like, oh, God, it's a snake. I wasn't particularly scared, but I was, you know, reacted like most people would. Um, and then, so, you know, I knew a little bit about snakes, but not very much. And then in college, it all changed. So I randomly took a class that happened to be a field section of a intro bio class. And then that class, a lot of the people were going to take a natural history of the vertebrates class. So I thought, why not? I mean, except for the fact that I was an English major, so all these classes were extra classes that weren't going to do anything <laughs> for me. But, And that class really changed my life, Chris. That was where I met Dr. Harry Green. And beyond that, I just met other people who liked wildlife. And some of the students became interested in birds. Some became interested in mammals. And for me, it was snakes. Yeah. And I just am fascinated by them. And I have been now for about 25 years, ever since that day. Yeah. So you're this was at Berkeley then? Yep. That's and right. you said you're an English major. What What was your, I mean, did you originally want to teach English? Did you want to be a writer or just English? It was either just kind of a random selection kind of thing. I don't know what I wanted back then, Chris. <laughs> um, it's funny because now that I'm at a polytechnic university where the liberal arts are, are not um, really focus, a focus of our university, it's hard to remember back what it was like at Berkeley when English was the major. It was a huge major. I remember our graduation ceremony was held just for the English major in the Greek theater because it was so many English majors. It was a place of world renown, and it was something that I thought would be fun while I was preparing for medical school or veterinary school. So indeed, I was always taking the chemistry. I was always taking the biology. I didn't intend to have a degree. Excuse me. I didn't intend to have a career in English. Um, But that all changed, of course, probably when I found snakes. (laughs) So you met Harry Green and he was teaching a class. uh, You said it was on a kind of like an overview of, of vertebrate biology? Yes, it was actually called Natural History of the Vertebrates. So it was really tetrapod biology, no fishes. And it was a famous class at UC Berkeley. It's been kind of has cult status now, I think. We've been credited for converting t- hundreds and hundreds of students into biologists. There's a there's whole generations now of biology professors and museum people and research scientists who got their start in that class. That'd be great. I'd love to know. I'd love to see that list of all the people that that it converted. I know so. it's pretty crazy. Even in just even in my year, I look at that because we had a T-shirt made with all of our names on the back, and I look at that now, and I'm like, oh my god! Like literally half the people in that huge class are scientists now. It's really cool. Huh. And so, like you said, you have you know some people in your class say they gravitated towards mammals or birds, but, but you were drawn more towards hairy and the snakes. And so you're in this class, but you're, you know, you're destined to be this English major at this, you know, world renowned institution for for English. And then, you know, how do you, how do you make that transition? Did you just kind of go up and and talk to Harry about the idea or, or what did that 
transition look like? Well, for me, it was that I had decided recently to quit the soccer team. I had been on a soccer scholarship for a while, but it was wreaking havoc on my grades. So I decided to quit, which meant I had to get a job because I didn't have my scholarship anymore. And I found a job through a friend um, from that class, actually, working at the Museum of Nat- of the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology there, which is the Natural History Museum. First, I was a bone numberer, meaning that I sat there. It was really macabre at night. I would sit there writing the numbers of each specimen on all the mammal bones. And then eventually I transitioned into the herp lab. And that was around the time I was taking that class. And I remember one day that Harry Green said to me, Emily, would you like to do an undergraduate research project? So he actually asked me, which to this day, I don't think I've ever been happier, more shocked, more excited. And I look back at, the, at that moment as a really as a transition moment in my life when he gave me that opportunity. And from there, I was off to the races. I went to a, a a conference, a herpetology conference in the summer of 97. And I found my people, Chris, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> yeah. Was that 97? I think I was at that. Con- was that Pennsylvania? No, was it was that? Seattle. Seattle. Yeah. It was the joint meeting of ichthyologists and herpetologists yeah. in Seattle. And I was, uh, I didn't present, I was just doing my research then. And then I presented my first paper the following summer, following summer at the Guelph meetings. Okay. Great. Yeah. But all that time I was, I was, I was basically, this is it now. And it was a matter of transitioning and taking a few upper division courses like evolution with Dave Wake and a few other courses that would help me to get into graduate school for biology, which is what I was able to do. Right. So how far into an English degree were you at the time you decided to make this shift? I was a junior, and so I ended up keeping the English major and not switching to biology. I just took whichever biology classes I wanted to and didn't take the ones I didn't want to. So at the time, I thought it was really slick because I graduated and got into a PhD program without ever taking genetics. And now I kick myself because I really wish I had a stronger grasp <laughs> of genetics now, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's great. But it, it sounds like it would have extended your undergraduate pretty significantly. So you went on then to do... Uh, PhD uh, at Arizona State. Is that right? Or, That's right. Or, I went to Arizona State University and I was in Dale DiNardo's lab. I was his first graduate student. Oh, and So how did that uh, connection occur? I was also, for my master's, not my PhD, I was somebody's first graduate student and it was, uh, it was kind of an interesting connection. How, how did you, how was that connection built where you became, uh, you know, his first student? You know, it's funny when you look back on these stories, because they always have some sort of weird element of chance to them. Yeah. And so I I knew Dale because he was previously a veterinarian at UC Berkeley. He's one of those DVM PhDs. Mm -hmm. And I had met him down in in the dungeons of the animal rooms in UC Berkeley when I was helping with some undergraduate research, but I didn't know him all that well. And then when I was looking for graduate programs, there was actually another scientist, Dr. Gordon Shewitt, who was at a satellite campus of Arizona State. I was interested in working with him, but I had to have a, a main advisor on the main campus too. So I pitched it to Dale and then one thing led to another. And after a while, I ended up just being more gravitated towards working more directly with, with Dale, although Gordon remained on my committee throughout. So it was really a lot of chance is what is what led to that, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I oh, it seems like there are so many moments in my career, your career, you know, most people's career where there's kind of inflection points that it was chance, luck. I mean, there are things you can do like work hard and, you know, communicate well, but but there are just these important moments that, that just happen and uh, they're they're so formative. You know, uh, so it's. 
Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I agree with you entirely. And as a professor now who has students, I really try to be cognizant of that in my day-to-day life because that moment that Harry Green offered me that research position was transformative to me, but it was just another just another moment in his day, right? And it was no big deal for him. So I try to think that now when I'm talking to students, that the way that I interact with them could lead to one of those moments in their lives. And it's a huge responsibility. And it's something that in positions that we are in where we have the power to change young people's lives, it is incredibly important that we that we do that with with a conscience. Yes, I I agree. And I think like that as well. And I also, one thing I've tried to do, and, and you know, I will probably get some hate email from one or two that slipped, but I, I generally try to respond to everybody who reaches out to me, every student, even if it, you know, I'm just saying, well, I'm busy at this point. This is what's going on with Orianne or, or with this research project. But I do try to at least get back to everybody um, and try to be conscious, like you said, that something that seems relatively small in 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 a, uh, otherwise a day that you have packed full of of big events to you, that that small moment can be huge to to a potential student or or a, you know a young staff member. Precisely. So, yeah. So okay. So you so some of the names that you went through um, and and just knowing what I know about some of your work over the years, uh, it, it sounds like beyond snakes, you may have had an interest in rattlesnakes. Is that true? Or was it more, you know, kind of maybe opportunity that, that led you to work with rattlesnakes? Or was that something you kind of pursued throughout this trajectory to, to graduate school? I definitely was interested in rattlesnakes. When I first learned about snakes, I found them to be the most fascinating. There was certainly there was an element of the kind of sexiness, the danger, the excitement to start when you're a young person. I think that's really common. But as I began to learn about them, I really was fascinated by the their incredible adaptations. You know, even and I I don't even mean venom necessarily and all these other and the rattle and all these other things that make rattlesnakes unique. I just mean as as of now as a physiologist and as a student then starting to get into physiology, I was blown away by the things that they do to make a living in the desert, you know, how low their metabolic rate is, how they can survive with very little water, um, how they regulate their temperatures. Those sorts of things really attracted me to them. And furthermore, as a budding physiologist, I was really cognizant of the idea that I had to get my hands on these animals to be able to draw blood samples and so on. And to this day, I haven't been able to think of a better animal to do studies in the field where you know, the results will be ecologically relevant on individuals over time than rattlesnakes because you know, they're above ground as ambush foragers. You can really get out there and, and watch individuals and get samples from them over time, over m- many years too, which is really an important thing to be doing in physiology, especially environmental physiology in the wild. Yeah. So you're down in Arizona and you start your PhD, um, your first official degree is a, in the field of biology. So. Um, how did how did you end up developing you know the focus of your dissertation and and tell us a little bit about about that project and and uh, what you did for your PhD? I think I was really lucky because being Dale's first graduate student, he wasn't hiring me to come in and you know follow up on this student's work and do this. I, I really had that freedom to to choose. So I recall that we put a bunch of radio transmitters in Western Diamondback Rattlesnakes my first year, and I was allowed to go out every other day and radio track them 
and get an idea of what they did. So, you know, make, Dale came from UC Berkeley just like I did. We both had that natural history background. We realized that any sort of applied physiological question that we wanted to ask and answer needed to be rooted in natural history. So I had that luxury of doing pure natural history work for a year. And then I remember the day when he said to me, well, what do you want to do now? I hemmed and hawed because I had a lot of ideas. But what I told him was that I was interested in not the why, but the how the male rattlesnakes became bigger. Like, why is it that, you know, not the ultimate evolutionary reasons, but the proximate physiological reasons. And so I spent the next five years after that doing experiments in the wild, which to this day is my favorite thing to do. Controlled experiments in the wild. Well, they're semi-controlled because they're in the wild, but they're relevant, right? Um, in the wild where the animals are able to behave freely to try to figure out how it is that males get bigger than females. Yeah. And for audience that didn't know that, they're not all snakes follow that pattern. Western diamondbacks and a lot of other vipers as well. But males are often larger uh, than the females. There are other species of snakes, where it's the opposite. Females are larger. So, um, uh, which is a topic that I've always been interested in. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about on previous uh, snake talk episodes. But uh, the fascinating part to me is is that your interest was physiologically how it happened. So, so how did it happen? How did males become larger than females? Yeah, it's really fascinating because it turns out that it's in, in Western diamondback rattlesnakes and likely in, in most species of male larger uh, rattlesnakes, it is mainly phenotypic plasticity, which was not something I expected. So there's not necessarily this um, fixed genetic component and turns out that it was mostly differences in their energy budgets. So they, they, they're born about the same size. They would grow about the same rates until they reached reproductive maturity, at which point the female started to put half of their body weight into their babies. And because they're so energy limited, they don't get a lot of food. That meant that they would not have enough energy for growth and the males would continue growing. And really it's important to think about the optimal body size for the sexes independently from one another. It's not so much that they're different in body size. It's that the females have their optimal body size, which is probably better to be a little smaller because if they kept growing, then they would have a higher energetic cost of maintenance, which is not so good given their natural history. Whereas for males, it is beneficial to be really big too. And that gets more into the evolutionary um, ultimate aspects of it with male-male combat. But I showed this, the part I loved, my, my study that I loved the most that I did in my dissertation was one of the ways I showed this was I supplementally fed females in the wild. And I was able to show that females, if you give them extra food, they'll grow just like males. And I created some monster females. They look like males because they were here and they were reproducing. You know, they had babies every single year. So it also showed that female rattlesnakes can reproduce every year. They just usually don't because they don't have enough energy to do so. So I just, you know, it's the flexibility of rattlesnakes that to this day makes me really excited in all the different types of studies we design on them. Yeah. And so to, to, uh, to illustrate to our audience the, the what phenotypic plasticity is, instead of defining it, um, if that wasn't the case and, and it was more, uh, you know, genetic based, what would you have seen with those females that you were feeding? Yeah. So what we, what we expected if it was not phenotypic plasticity was that the females we were feeding would just get fatter and would have more babies and would not necessarily grow bigger if they were if they had this kind of fixed size that was smaller. 
but um, they did all of those things. They reproduced more often, they got fatter, and they grew, and they got big, just like males, showing yeah. that they were able to do so. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you uh, clarifying that a little bit better, just to help, help some people with that uh, definition. So, so you're, you're doing your PhD down in Arizona, and uh, beautiful place to, uh, to work, especially on snakes and rattlesnakes. And then... Uh, you're sitting, as you mentioned, you're a professor in California at the moment. So how did how did you end up making that transition from being a PhD student um, and then, uh, you know, and then being a professor? Did you end up uh, doing postdocs or other work in between or was it um, you know, pretty immediately after your PhD that you got the position in California? I did get the position straight out of my PhD, which is something that is really unusual now. I think it has to do with the fact that there's so many more PhDs than there are jobs now due to the changing landscape of education. I also think I got really lucky because anyone who's on the job market, who's been on the job market in academia knows that it's not necessarily about how good you are. It's about being in the right place at the right time as well. It's just, it's just really a conundrum to be honest with you, Chris. And it just so happened that my dream job opened up when I had actually had a postdoc lined up with Steve Secor at university of Alabama to study some of the physiology of Python feeding. And then I ended up just trying out applying for a few jobs to places where you know, I would really, really want to be if I was lucky enough. And I was lucky enough to get the job at Cal Poly, which was, you know, there, there's there's no way that I, there could be a better place for me. And I, I believe that to this day. So I feel really, really lucky about that as well. Yeah. And you grew up in California. Well, right? I did. I did to a certain degree. My dad was in the Navy. So I moved every two to three years. But I did spend a lot of time in California when I was little. And then also I went to college in California. So it felt like home. If, if I had a home, it would be somewhere in California. <laughs> Gotcha. And so where is, it's Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, is that right? That's right. It's on the central coast, about an hour and a half north of Santa Barbara. So people who aren't familiar with California, we're, we're in a beautiful coastal area without, without too many people, about halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And I love that because there's a lot of wide open spaces and a lot of mountains, a lot of beaches, a lot of climatic differences over a short yeah. distance. It's really nice. So you must be pretty close to like Big Sur in that region. Are you just south of there? Is that right? That's right. We're a little bit south of Big Sur. And probably we'll never get to go there again now that the road washed out last week again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that place. I've been there a number of times. So <clears throat> so great. Well, you get your you get your job as a professor um, at one of sounds like a dream location for you. And uh, you get that right out of your PhD, which which is pretty rare. I mean, I'm sure you know many similar stories, but I mean, I know people who are are top quality. You know, people finishing their PhDs. You know, say at a you know a good university, they'd be one of the top in their cohort at that university, and you know they're applying for literally hundreds of jobs these days. So. Um, it's a. Uh, it, it is interesting, and and we could. I would be very interested uh, to to talk to you about you know you know what you mentioned about the education system. Um, it does seem like we have. You know, I've said. Uh, let me ask you one thing about it, mm-hmm. and because I would be very curious to get your take because you're closer to it uh, these days than I am. And 
you know, I, I've always said that, you know, it's kind of like a, a supply and demand in that, and especially in herpetology, it seems like we have so few jobs, meaning you finish your bachelor's degree and, you know, you can get various seasonal positions or working in labs or museums, but they're typically not going to be, you know, a career type job, you know, and so then a lot of people, you know, go on and get a master's <clears throat> and then um, then they typically spend two or three years working, say, in the field and in really, you know, working with these animals that they love in the wild and having these great experiences. But then when you finish your master's in herpetology, there's very, very few jobs uh, for, for that level of position. And so then a lot of people end up going on and getting a PhD to maintain. And so I, we have this this huge supply of PhD students or, or, or people with PhDs, excuse me. Um, and we, we're to the point now where like, we'll be hiring seasonal technician type positions. We're talking three, four month jobs to go out and I don't know, do radio telemetry on a turtle or a snake. And, and we get multiple people with PhDs applying. So anyways, I'd just be curious your take on that within herpetology in particular, to, you know, basically what I'm saying is that because people love it so much, even though there isn't a, uh, enough of a supply for jobs, people keep pushing the education so they can, you know, basically stay in the field and do it, what it is that they love until they hit that wall. I mean, you're absolutely right, Chris. And I think that it's so complicated. I think we could have a whole podcast on that. It has to do with so many things. It has to do with... Um, you know, the economic conditions, like, for example, with COVID-19, a lot of people are just staying in grad school because there's no jobs. It has to do with things like the changing um, in education. They're relying more on lecturers and hiring fewer tenure track faculty. And at least at the California State University, it has to do with budget cuts from the state to support full-time faculty. And I think that when it comes to jobs for people with master's degrees, more and more what we see in California is that the main jobs that are available are environmental consulting jobs, which are growing, by the way. So that's the one beacon of light out there. And that's great for, for people to a certain extent, but some students would much, much, much prefer to be doing things like you mentioned that the Orian does, right? Being able to go out and do radio telemetry on snakes, participating in actual original research for their jobs, as opposed to maybe sitting at a construction site monitoring you know, a backhoe, which is what a lot of the consulting jobs are. So I think yeah. that the entire thing is really, really, really complicated, but it is something that is the trick is that us as advisors, we have to be careful to not be advising students about the things, the way things were, were when we were in graduate school. Like, oh, if you do this and do this, you'll get a job. That's not necessarily true anymore. So we really have to be realistic to students about the fact that, especially from my point of view in academia, it's looking like it's about five to eight percent of people who get PhDs are actually able to get tenure track jobs in academia now in biology. That's really low. I think it was 20 something wow. percent. Yeah. I think it was 20 something percent when we were graduate students. And then it, I, I know that some of my advisors say that it was 50% when they were in grad school, you know, back in the sixties. So it really is changing fast. Yeah. That's interesting. And the whole uh, piece you mentioned about, uh, you know, the increase in lecturers, how universities are, you know, getting the classes taught that they need to, teach is interesting but like you said we could do um 
you, we could do a whole podcast on that. Maybe we should at some point, but, but let's, uh, let's get back on track here. And snakes. Um, Talk about snakes. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, uh, so you're, you're in your dream job. It sounds like, so, uh, you know, obviously I'm assuming it's fairly diverse. Um, but I'd like to focus in a little bit on, uh, research. And so would you mind, uh, telling the audience, just kind of give them maybe a general overview of, your research program there at the university, how you've developed it, if there's certain certain areas uh, that you and your students focus on, those types of things? Sure, I'd be glad to. I'll give you a kind of brief overview right now, which is that I'm a very general and integrative environmental physiologist, meaning that I tend to stick to specific study organisms, lizards and snakes, and I my students ask all kinds of questions within those, usually in the field. So, I started out doing more work in endocrinology and reproductive physiology. And then I've also transitioned into stress physiology, which is something that's always really timely. And then more recently, in the past few years, I've been doing a lot of thermal physiology work and thermal ecology work. And just now, I'm starting to transition a little bit into hydric physiology, so looking at water as a limiting resource in desert animals. So you can see what I mean. It's all environmental stuff, right? It's all temperature and 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 water and things that are impacting these animals in the wild. So just most recently today, my former graduate student, Haley Crowell, had a manuscript accepted on the thermal ecology of the Southern Pacific rattlesnakes here in the Central Coast, where she actually did a study on four different populations of local rattlesnakes living in extremely different... Remember how I said that the climate changes a lot over a short distance here? So she was able to study them in hot inland environments, cold coastal environments and and be able to model the impact of climate change on them. And the interesting news is that it looks like climate change is going to be helping rattlesnakes, at least here in the relatively mild central coast. And so, the, you know, what you make of that probably depends on what you think about rattlesnakes. <laughs> some people are going to be really excited and some people are going to be really upset to hear that. But clearly my students have driven the direction that I've gone in. I started out doing a little more basic science and it's become a little more applied in terms of conservation biology because that's what my students are interested in. Yeah, it seems like a lot of students are uh, you know, interested in that applied aspect. And, and obviously that's an area I work in and, and uh, it's something important for the world and for the snakes. So that's great. Uh, I, I think the, the arena that you're moving into talking about the importance of water to desert animals has always fascinated me. I remember when I was, when I was doing my uh, PhD up in Idaho, there was a, another graduate student. He didn't end up finishing, but um, he was, he was working on that issue with snakes. And in particular, he was looking at snakes in the sagebrush ecosystem and looking at the variation in how I guess it's how snakes lost water through their skin and how that varied among species. And then in turn, um, you know, kind of what uh, habits or habitats the, the snakes were using. And I just remember that's never left me. It was always so fascinating that, that, you know, the snakes were so different in that regard. Um, I'm assuming you see the same thing in Arizona, California. Yeah. 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 Well, like it's that. really interesting that you bring up that exact concept because it's, incredibly understudied. Um, and just this, literally this year, 2021, we're starting up a big study on transepidermal water loss in snakes and lizards. So I'm really looking forward to to that because there's 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 quite a bit of data out there on overall animal evaporative water loss, but not on skin resistance. And so that's one of the 
new things that I am excited to break into. Yeah. I mean, to give the audience just a very generalized, you know, if we were to take, uh, let's just say probably a timber rattlesnake from where I live here in the Southern Appalachians, which are very like a temperate rainforest, if we were to take one of those timber rattlesnakes and put them side by side with a, say a Western diamondback in Southern Arizona, um, I would predict that that timber rattlesnake would be losing a lot more water through its skin um, and, uh, and snakes vary drastically there. So I think that's a really um, good prediction. That's what seems to be, I'm actually not aware of a lot of data on snakes, but that seems to be the case in the slightly more extensive literature on lizards for sure. Yeah. And you know what I would be very curious about? Sorry, now I'm really going on tangents, but if you took like a, a timber rattlesnake, a species, a lot of phenotypic plasticity. We talked about that term earlier, but, you know, wide ranging species, right? And you have it in places like here, temperate rainforests. And you also have mountain places like parts of Texas and Kansas and places like that. It'd be interesting to see uh, if, if it varies within the species as well. Exactly. These are the exact kind of questions we're interested in. Also, acclimation effects. Um, there was a one paper out recently that showed that pregnant female rattlesnakes dramatically increase their transepidermal water loss. Is that a function of having more body volume, more, more water in their bodies, or is it actually serving a function? All kinds of questions. And it's a wide open research area, Chris. You know, I've, There's just very few people doing it. So I'm really, really looking forward to getting into that because there's all of these climate change papers now and they're ma- mainly considering temperature only when yeah. water not only is you know, possibly equally or more important, but it's going to interact really closely with temperature as the climate warms. Yeah, exactly. And, and we know that, um, you know, especially in the West that, you know, your precipitation patterns and and water in general is changing. So um, interesting. Another area, another part of your research program that I just wanted to spend a couple minutes talking about um, is the concept of snake translocation. It's a topic that comes up quite a bit, I'm sure, with the service work you do in the communities. It comes up. Uh, we do similar uh, service-type efforts here with copperheads and timber rattlesnakes, and, and, and it's always a, a topic to be discussed. We're discussing it with the state agencies. Um, and so, first of all, um, for the audience, why don't you just kind of just give us an overview of what snake translocation is, basically how it might be used. And and I would say it's it seems like it's being used more and more um, as time, you know, as I've moved through my career. Absolutely. I'd be glad to. So snake translocation or relocation refers to the movement by a human, so catching and moving the snake, uh, usually in what we call a nuisance rattlesnake, so a rattlesnake that's in somebody's yard or is you know crossing a path in a in a high traffic area at a national park that kind of thing, and moving the snake and uh, releasing it somewhere else, and it's used like I just said as a management for nuisance rattlesnakes. But there's also another potential reason to use it, which is if there's populations that go extinct, then you might actually translocate rattlesnakes into that pop- into that area after hopefully after you've solved the problem about why that population went extinct to repatriate that area. So um, those two reasons, you know, management of nuisance rattlesnakes and repatriation of extinct populations are the main times that we see translocation. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but much of the research on a variety of different species, some has actually been on down there in the Southwest 
um, I say down there in Arizona where you used to be, um, and, and other places, uh, a lot of the research has shown that snakes do things such as um, if you move them too far, they move relatively long distances, um, they might lose weight, have lower survival. Um, is that accurate or, or Yes. Yes. No, it is accurate. And I would refer people who are interested in more to kind of the pioneer of this work, who is Dr. Erica Novak, who's now um, out of Northern Arizona University, who did a bunch of these studies on Western diamondbacks at national monuments and showed dramatically um, reduced survival in translocated animals. Now, notably, these animals were long distance translocated. So it would be like driving a snake 20 miles away to a place that to us looks appropriate and dropping it off. And I think that's the important part is that we've really underestimated snakes all this time, right? We think that's just a snake. It should be fine. It's out of danger now, drop it off somewhere that looks good and it'll just take up life there, but they don't, they seem to wander. They seem to try to navigate home and they're more likely to be hit by cars, to be picked up by a predator, like a hawk um, or just to kind of waste away. So the outcomes in general for long distance translocation from most studies appear to be poor. Although I do want to mention that I have seen a number of, especially, um, unpublished abstracts or posters at conferences that showed individual populations of stu- in studies where people did long distance translocation and the snakes did fine, at least, you know, for as long as the study went on, which is usually a year for a master's project. And for whatever reason, a lot of those don't get published. And so I just wanted to point out that I think that it's a lot more nuanced. Translocation is a lot more nuanced than what the current data show. Yeah. Well, first thing I I take from that is that I, I think I I need to get Erica on the podcast. I think she'd be a great guest. You totally need to get her on. She'll talk, she'll give you all of the details about translocation for sure. That'd be great. So how has, uh, I know you, you've published multiple papers in relation uh, to, to snake translocation. So tell, tell us a little bit about your research program relative to snake translocation and, and what you've, you've been doing. Yeah, so I came into the scene basically seeing uh, Erica's research, seeing this you know lower survival, and then I wondered about um, potential sublethal effects, or I wondered about some of the mechanisms beyond you know predation and being hit by a car that might contribute to lower survival. So as a physiologist, I was curious about whether translocation was stressful to the snakes. Stress ecology has been a major part of my work since the very beginning. So um, I had two different graduate students work on translocation. One did short distance translocation where the snake was repeatedly moved a short distance, which mimics what might happen because sometimes when snakes are short distance translocated, they will crawl right back and they'll have to be translocated again. So I wanted to find out whether um, short distance translocation repeated handling was stressful. And that was the work of Dr. Matt Holding, who's now postdoc at University of Nevada, Reno. And, and then I had another graduate student named Corey Hyken who was interested in long-distance translocation and whether that was stressful. And the basic answer is it's complicated. Long-distance translocation definitely raised their stress hormones um, a little bit uh, compared to short-distance translocation, which did not seem to impact their stress physiology at all. Gotcha. And, and when you say short-distance, what are those distances again? We did small it- part. Yeah, we did a, a 250 meter translocation, which we estimated would be what someone might do. Like the classic example is the the rattlesnake at the Sonoran Desert Museum in Arizona that they would move it out of the way of, of the visitors, 
because you know this is a kind of a wild museum, right? There's rattlesnakes just living in the actual, air, you know, outside of cages in this museum, mm-hmm. and um, they would move it out of the way, and it would come right back. And they had to re- they had to translocate this thing like fifty times or something. I can't remember how many times. So we did it for six weeks in a row, and the snakes were pretty much unaltered. Their thermal biology was altered a little bit that first week. They didn't thermoregulate quite as well, but after that, they figured it out. And so the the main theme that comes out of my research on stress ecology of translocation is that rattlesnakes seem to be pretty resilient, especially to short distance translocation. And I like to think that my work has gone gone a, a certain way towards informing a lot of the policies now, which are or, or recommendations for wildlife officials, which is when possible, well, when possible, leave the snake alone. First of all, that's really important. But when you have to move a snake, move it a short distance. Don't move it a long distance. It's not good for anyone to move the snake a long distance. Yes. And, and as I mentioned, you know, I and our ancestry, we do quite a bit of this, uh, mainly in the Southern Appalachian region where we're based. Um, and, you know, but I always tell people, uh, you know, cause there's a lot of, if, if you're going to get to the point of doing translocations, it, it could really, depending where you are and, you know, how, how people are distributed and snakes are distributed, it could end up taking a fair amount of time and energy and money. So, you know, what I always tell people uh, relative to snake translocation, rattlesnake translocation, is uh, that, yes, we will, you know, we'll come out and move the snake, give them some background on what's known about translocations and tell them, however, we're only going to move it, you know, 100, 200, 300 yards or meters mm-hmm. to, to, you know, back to a forest block. Uh, so that snake is then likely still kind of within the area it knows. And there is a chance that the snake will come back. And if the person wants us to move it, uh, you know, a, a, an incredible distance, uh, you know, depending on the situation, we may not even come get it or, or we may come get it and do something else. But anyways, that's we translocate snakes short distances and we try to do a lot of outreach and education. Uh, with the landowner in the process. so I mean, that's the key right there, Chris, because translocation is only solving an immediate problem. It's not teaching people about the snakes that are around them or helping them uh, learn to live with snakes. And that's where the education comes in. And that's more and more in the past couple of years, I've really been turning my attention to that because I'm realizing that one person who, one landowner who actually sees the rattlesnake up close and who learns about them from someone who's informed like me can have a dramatic impact in the way that they talk to their neighbors and their kids and the way that they manage their land from then on out. It can have a huge effect on these rattlesnakes, so much more than me just coming and moving a snake. I just wanted to take a quick break and uh, tell you guys that snakes are one of the most persecuted groups of animals in the world. Unfortunately, most snakes that encounter people end up dead, but the Orient Society is dedicated to changing that. Go to www.orian.org to learn more and join the effort to stop the persecution. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I think that's a great segue or transition to maybe talk a little bit more about the service aspect of of your life and and career. Um, But I will tell, you know, all the audience that, that, you know, Emily has, you know, a 
pretty broad, a significant research program, and there's a lot more going on than just you know the, the few minutes we were able to discuss it. And we'll we'll pass on some uh, information uh, where you get you guys can go and learn more uh, about what Emily's doing, and we'll pass that on at the end of the podcast. But so back to service, uh, you know, service to the communities within which you you live and work, and also. You know, from my perspective, service to the snakes. Um, so, uh, tell us a little bit about something called Central Coast Snake Services. You bet. I started a business in 2019, and it started out being organized around uh, snake safety training. So, I'm in an area, like I said before, that has a lot of wide open natural areas. We have a lot of parks, we have a lot of military bases, places where people who work there may come into contact with rattlesnakes. And so I started to do these snake safety trainings where I would teach people things like how to identify snakes and what to do when they saw a rattlesnake, mainly leave it alone. But if they needed to move it, how to move it, how to translocate a rattlesnake. So all this um, data and science-based and very importantly, safety-based to keep people safe from snakes and to keep snakes safe from people um, consulting business. So I started that. And then (laughs) what happened, Chris, was this spring – COVID-19 hit and all of a sudden people here on the central coast were all home and working from home and in their yards a lot. And we had a year where we had some late rains and there was just rattlesnakes in people's yards everywhere. And they started to call me. And so I really um, took my business in a new direction. I'd say that the snake safety training is still the biggest component of my business, but the other part was doing rattlesnake relocations in people's yards and using that as an educational opportunity. This past year, I think, it's much smaller, much smaller of a very, excuse me, relatively few number of of relocations that I have to do here on the central coast because there's not as many snakes as say in the Phoenix area, for example, where rattlesnake solutions is doing thousands of them a year. Mm -hmm. But, but we definitely help dozens of rattlesnakes. And while we did it, we were able to change people's minds about rattlesnakes. I really do believe that we also do things like install rattlesnake proof fencing in homes where people really need it. So for example, there was this one home that was just built and I could tell by looking at the surrounding landscape that there's probably rattlesnake dens right around it. And they had a snake in their yard. So in those cases, I recommend the only way to really, really keep your dogs and little kids safe is, is to prevent the snakes from, from getting in. Um, and, and I do, uh, free educational outreach. So I have constantly at my house now because we're working from home. I have Girl Scouts out in the front yards doing socially distanced um, little mini seminars with Buzz, who is my outreach rattlesnake. So we do it all really. I, I'm in sort of a gem- general rattlesnake related consulting. Great. So is Buzz a Southern Pacific? He is. I got a call a few years ago from a gentleman who had um, raised Buzz from a neonate who's caught nearby on the coast and he he was at that time he was 21 years old and had been in a relatively small cage his whole life and and had I don't think it was the cage size necessarily you know how it's hard to tell Chris but he um but he was definitely obese because <laughs> he'd been fed too much so he was he was short and fat and uh, so we've kind of had him on a diet we're trying to rehabilitate him but we use him for the outreach events and for snake safety training he's really mellow he like doesn't want to ever rattle he's really good snake to to use for those kind of events yeah. So education, as as you mentioned, is is critical, uh, you know, for people to understand in relationship to anything like a translocation or or understanding how to be safe around snakes. Um, and 
you know, I, I also do similar snake safety presentations. And uh, one of the keys, uh, one of the most powerful things I think for a lot of people is just um, snake ID. And uh, I want to say that your group uh, helps out quite a bit with, with snake ID. And so how do you, how do you do that? How do, how do you, like, what's the mechanism? Is it something people call you up? Do they have to send you a picture? What's the, what's the mechanism there? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think that a lot of people who from around the, the country and the world who want a snake ID, they know to go to the snake identification Facebook group, which is where they're going to get a good ID really fast. But for most people here on the Central Coast, they they don't know about that. They they want someone also who's really, you know, close by and knows the snakes of the area really well. And they'll a lot of people have my number on speed dial because every spring and fall the news will run a, a little mini segment saying, Hey, it's rattlesnake season because it the spring and fall mating seasons. And so people have my number and if they see a snake, they can snap a photo and text it to me and I'll immediately respond. I'm, I'm glued to my phone 24 seven, Chris, we do 24 seven snake ID 365 days, days of the year. That's all free of course. And then also um, I'm always available at those times for the, for relocations or even just sometimes people call me from somewhere else in the state and I can talk them through how to do it themselves if they are, you know, willing to do that. So I really try to do it all and we don't deny service to anyone. So uh, if people can't afford to have, you know, to pay the small fee that I charge to have a snake relocated, which basically pays for my gas, we don't deny service for that. I'll do it for free anyway. So I really feel like that's all important because I'm investing in the snakes by doing this as well. Like clearly this is for the safety of people and their livestock and their pets, but I'm also helping the snakes because whenever I go out for a snake relocation or whenever I talk to somebody about a snake, it's an education opportunity, just like you were saying. And I can walk around their property. I can show them some of the risks about their home and make them feel a little bit better about how to live safely around rattlesnakes. Yeah. And when I do these snake safety presentations, one of the questions I always get is, you know, or if it's, you know, a call on a snake, you know, from the neighborhood or, or what have you, people are just like, the question I have is, how can I keep a snake away from my house? How do I make it so, you know, and, and I mean, we have, we go through different kind of, say, landscaping related mm -hmm. uh, things that you can do. Um, you know, we are often answering questions about uh, some of these like commercial snake repellents uh, that you see in the market. Um, but I noticed that your uh, Central Coast Snake Services uh, advertises fencing mm -hmm. for properties. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. How how often do you do that? What type of fencing do you use? Is it typically pretty effective? Yeah, thanks for asking about this. Um, this is something that Rattlesnake Solutions in Arizona does a, a much higher volume than we do. And Brian Hughes, the owner, was um, is a friend of mine. He's been really was really helpful in helping me to learn how to do it effectively. So I wanted to give him a shout out for that. Um, we don't do a lot of them here. I think last year we did five because I try to discourage people from doing it, even though it's it's actually the only like lucrative part of the business because these are big jobs. I, I I discourage people from doing it unless it's really necessary. Like I said, unless their <laughs> their home is right next to a rattlesnake den or something. Um, because it's actually a really, um, th there's a really complicated big job that unless you know snakes, it won't be done well. Like, I hate to say this, but I've been called out to 
places where landscapers have put in the fencing and it, it's just not done right unless you have a snake person doing it. So like yeah. you wouldn't want to mess around. These are rattlesnakes. These are the only potentially fatal animals that we have around here in California. Like don't mess around. And the long story short, Chris, is that we use um, a material. It's a quarter inch hardware cloth that is basically going to be the openings are, are too small for a baby rattlesnake to get through. And then we build it to the appropriate height, which is usually usually around three feet, depends on the landscape, which is too, ha- too tall for an uh, adult rattlesnake to get over. And we're affixing this in very specific ways to existing fencing. Um, that's all relatively easy to do. You sink it into the ground. You have to create, make it totally snake-proof. It's the gates that are the trick. The gates give me nightmares at night, thinking about <laughs> each gate. Um, in fact, we're doing a gate this afternoon that we were supposed to finish yesterday, but we had to go back because every time you do it, there's always like... In this case, the house is a little bit crooked. So now we had to, you know, we had to build some new pieces. So it's all very custom, very, very, very difficult work to, and to, to basically be 100% effective. I would say the only way, way that a rattlesnake is getting in after we snake proof a yard is if like it got picked up by an eagle or a hawk and got dropped in the yard, which was the chances <laughs> of that happening, right? So it is really effective, but it's only necessary for certain properties. Great. Well, I think it's good work uh, that you're doing, going beyond just, say, the academic world and doing services that are making uh, the world a better place for both people and snakes. So that's that's great. I uh, appreciate that. Um, we, we're going to make one more transition. We've covered some <laughs> broad areas here, but uh, we've had a couple comments on the podcast. The podcast has had great uh, reviews and I would encourage anybody who's enjoying this podcast to get on and give us a five star uh, review and, and please uh, share a comment with us. But um, we received a couple comments about um, people asking for more women guests and and that prompted me. Well, for and first I'll tell you, I just typically I don't think about those types of things, meaning like uh, you know, gender or religion or. or race, when I'm thinking about you know, I don't know, whatever, hiring a staff member, or I'm thinking about a podcast guest, I'm just thinking about a topic, whatever it might be. You know, we want to do environmental physiology. We want to do, uh, you know, snake handling churches. And and I just go find, uh, you know, who I think would be the, the best person. And so, but those comments kind of, you know, made me think a little bit about this. And I went back and kind of looked at, you know, the proportion of men to women. And, and you know, we did have, you know, a higher proportion of, of male guests. Um, but I do think those proportions are somewhat in line with um, the current proportions of, of men and women, in the snake field, if you will. Obviously, our podcast guests are more diverse than just academic uh, people publishing scientific papers, but uh, you shared with me a piece of information that I think is is uh, pretty interesting um, on a manuscript that you have, I believe in press, is that right? Or in preparation? But- it's in press. It's coming out next month in Herpetologica. Great. And, and it is on women in herpetology and in particular kind of analyzing trends over time of uh, using, uh, you know, kind of authorship on, you know, published papers. Um, So I was wondering, first of all, 
could you tell us a little bit about like the genesis of the idea? Like how, how did you decide I want to, you know, I want to do a little bit of research in, in this realm. You know what? I can't, I actually can't remember exactly the precise moment when this idea was born. I think it was during a lab meeting when we were, I think we were talking about um, some recent papers that were showing that there was um, gender bias in everything from the review process to, um, you know, teaching evaluations and et cetera, just about how women get in the, the bad rap all the time. Right. And mm-hmm. And one of my uh, undergraduates, Katie Rock, was particularly interested in this concept because she's a biology major, but she's also a women and gender study minor at Cal Poly, and she was a junior. And I can't remember exactly how we got there, but we came up with this idea that she should try to actually quantify if it's changed over time. Because I remember telling her, you know, it seems like there's always been lots of female graduate students, just as many as male, but they the numbers of professors don't seem to change. <laughs> let's try to look and see if we can figure out some reasons why. And so we did, we actually, and this is, these methods are were crazy. I'm pretty proud of this. We, we gathered all papers, all the papers published on an amphibian or reptile in the past 10 years. So from 2010 to 2019, that decade, every single one, Chris, it was crazy. <laughs> That's hundreds of thousands of authors. Yeah, oh yeah. And we um, worked with a computer science uh, student to generate an algorithm that assigned probability of binary gender, male or female, based on the names using a birth certificates database. And not to bore you with the details, but we we only used names that we could assign with greater than 95% confidence to a given gender and went forward with that. And in addition to that, we also, specifically for lizards and snakes, because I'm a squamate biologist, so I was interested, we went back 50 years for that one, Chris. <laughs> we went back to the 70s <laughs> on that one. And um, and what we showed that was that the proportion of female authors is much lower than men. So in the past decade, it's been about, about 2.25 males to one female. So somewhere in the 30-something percent um, of all authorship events are by women. Uh, but it's increased pretty pretty dramatically. Even in the past 10 years, it's, ri- it's risen quite a bit. And if you go back to the 70s on lizards and snakes, you'll see that it was somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of, of 8 to 9% of all authors were women, but now we're up to as much as 35%. And we were able to compare that uh, in the different groups of herps. So we looked at um, differences in the past 10 years in authorship in based on herpetological order. And we found that the women were most underrepresented. So the fewest number of female authors in the Sicilians. So Gymnophiona among amphibians. And then among reptiles, it was the crocodilians. That was the, the fewest females and um, squalmates too. Squalmates was pretty low. And, but I actually, I thought that we were going to see that there was going to be fewer women studying snakes than lizards, but that's not the case. It turns out that it's very, very, very similar. And in fact, now as of like the end of the past decade, there's more women studying snakes than there are studying lizards. This is in terms yeah. of the percentage overall. So there's a lot of changes going on is what's what we're seeing. Uh, one more tidbit that was really cool from this article that I liked a lot is that um, we looked at collaboration as well. So we looked at if there was a woman who was in a leadership role in the paper, it's so either first author, which is usually, you know, the student or the person who does most of the work or the last author, who's oftentimes the professor like me, who's, who's um, responsible for the work. If there's a woman in, in one of those spots, it dramatically increases the chance that there's additional women as co-authors. So in other words, women leading research are much more likely to collaborate with other women when it comes to herpetology, which I thought was fascinating 
um, to think about why that is. Yeah, that's that's probably one of the most interesting results in some ways for a question. I was just about to ask you before you mentioned that. I was just about to ask you if you thought that that the patterns that you see, it sounds like they're changing over time, even in the last 10 years, that the patterns, uh, you know, in, in who's publishing are just kind of are proportional to men and women in the field, meaning that there have historically there were fewer women and that numbers um, rising for whatever reason. But then, uh, or I was going to ask you to speculate, which as a scientist, you may not want to speculate, but (laughs) to speculate um, how much of this might not just be proportional to, you know, the, the number of scientists, say in particular fields and some type of, of more of a true bias. I don't know if they're both biases, but but you get I think you get what I'm saying where people are actively not including, say, a woman because of, of mm-hmm. gender. And mm-hmm. and that last piece you mentioned, I don't know, just kind of interesting and maybe suggests some of that. So are you willing to speculate or <laughs> oh yeah, I don't, I don't mind speculating. Um no, I think that it's a really interesting question. And you know, it's definitely speculation because we didn't control for the number. And of, so of course part of the reason that the number, the percentage of women uh, publishing has gone up is that we now have a higher percentage of women in herpetology. I mean we know we can see that at conferences. We, like I said, the all the data out there show that when it comes to biology degrees, graduate degrees, conference attendance in most of the STEM fields, including herpetology, we see that it's about 50-50 men and women who are actually getting these degrees and going to these conferences. What we see is that it drops off for professorships. And so that's that's something you see across the STEM fields. And the big question is why. But I would like to say that I think that that's only part of the reason the authorship's going up. The other part, here's my hypothesis, is that what we saw was a, a huge increase in the average number of authors in papers, even in, in just the past 10 years. So people are, are you know, having more co-authors than they ever did. And a dramatic decline in the number of sole authored papers, which is something that almost never happens anymore, right? We don't very rarely see people, people, people publishing on their own. And so what I think has happened is that people are now changing the culture of publication where they're saying they're going to publish this paper in their lab, and they're now going to include those Texts, for example, those undergrad texts who collected some of the data, they're going to include them as co-authors now, whereas in the past they might not have. And so just because yeah. that's where most of the women are is in this, you know, students or younger professionals, you, you'll see an increase in the number of women because of that greater inclusion of everyone at that stage. So that's my hypothesis. I don't, you know, we don't have data to support it, but we certainly do know that most of the single authored papers were were and are still authored by men. Women are much, much less likely to publish on their own. They're more likely to grant authorship to other people, including women. Uh, okay, interesting. So, but in general, it sounds like um, whatever's happened in the past, but it sounds like we're moving in a positive direction from your perspective. If you don't mind, I'm going to read the last sentence of the abstract. Is that okay to do, even though it's not in print yet? I think it's fine. Okay. It says, our data suggest that the gender gap in herpetology, which has traditionally appeared to be a male-dominated field, is slowly narrowing. So I think that's an encouraging uh, kind of outcome of the study. I mean, you do have the word slowly in there, um, but but it does sound like it's narrowing. So that's encouraging. It is. I think it's really cool. 
I think it's really, really exciting. It's an exciting time to be a young female herpetologist. And the last thing I would ask you in that arena is that um, you are incredibly successful in this field. Um, you have a very interesting story, which we went through that, you know, you, you, um, you know, achieve this success, um, you know, kind of going a non-traditional route. So um, do you just have any general advice that you would give uh, to women who are looking to uh, succeed in the field of herpetology? I absolutely do. And it comes right out of what we just discussed, which is collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. So um, I think that I'm not willing to say that this is necessarily a gender difference, but um, at least qualitatively with some of the labs that I know, it seems like there's this movement now for that competitive nature. You know what I mean, Chris, that we like, oh, someone's going to scoop me or something like that. There's a movement away from that towards collaboration. And I personally believe that a lot of that is driven by either directly by, by women, by the fact that they tend to be more collaborative, as is shown in our data, um, or indirectly by mentoring. So like, for example, some of my students who did a master's with me in which I really preach the, the benefits of collaboration, that basically what you're going to produce is going to be a synergy where the sum is greater than the, um, the product is greater than the sum of the parts. Um, they go on to their PhDs and are in these labs that are a little bit more worried about um, conflicts and scooping. And they say that my philosophy stays, sticks with them and helps promote collaboration over time. And gets them more papers, it gets them more ideas, it gets them better science. And so I think that everyone should keep that in mind as they move into science. The the more that you can work with others, the better your science is going to be, and the better off your career prospects will be as well. Yeah, and that's probably uh, good advice for everybody uh, mm -hmm. in this field, whether you're a uh, uh, man or a woman. So great. Well, I appreciate uh, you. Looking forward to, to this paper coming out and, and seeing, uh, you know, some of the response and, and further areas uh, of research in this field. So one of the things I like to do uh, as we get towards the end of uh, these episodes is I like to have or hear a good snake story. So do you have uh, maybe an exciting or a inspiring, something, some snake story from your past uh, that you'd be willing to share with us? I have so many, Chris. Oh my gosh. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, I will share one, a recent one, because it's been on my mind a lot lately. It's To me, it's kind of symbolic of the train wreck year that was 2020 and um, ways that we can take bad things and turn them into good things. So um, to make a long story short, last year, I was um, called to a local preserve where some a visitor had um, had injured a rattlesnake, and it was terrible because it was a gestating female rattlesnake, and he had pulled a stake out of the ground that had a sign saying to stay away from the rattlesnake because she was in a little rocky area, and he used it to stab her multiple times, and she didn't die. Even though he actually pulled off her, he cut off her rattle and left her there to die. She was still alive two days later, and it was really traumatic. I took her home and operated on her and tried to save her life, but she ended up dying the next day and she had 12 embryos. And I was actually pretty devastated. These kind of things really get to me. Um, but because of that, something wonderful happened. 
And what happened was um, it got into the news. People were really upset that someone would go into a preserve and kill a snake in her house. And a number of people started calling me, including a young man, a 12-year-old young man who had uh, found, a at the same preserve, a rattlesnake rookery. And now, Chris, I've never seen a Southern Pacific rattlesnake rookery. Um, for your listeners who may not know, that's a place where multiple pregnant female rattlesnakes get together and hang out in kind of in a big pile and gestate together and have their babies together. And there's hypotheses about why they do it, but we're not really sure. It doesn't happen very often with Southern Pacific rattlesnakes. They usually give birth on their own. And so I was able to go up there and watch those snakes for the next two months as they success each one successfully had her babies and, you know, the pregnant ones were babysitting the babies of the non-pregnant ones while they were off hunting. And we saw so many incredible social interactions. And best of all, Chris, was this 12-year-old uh, whose name is Wyatt Stapp um, became convinced that he wants to become a herpetologist because only he and I were allowed. They closed the trail to protect the snakes because the snakes were right next to the trail. So they closed the trail and only he and I were allowed up there whenever we wanted to watch the snakes. And it was just the most wonderful experience for him. We were able to save those snakes that probably would have been, you know, run over by mountain bikes or something like that and really learn a lot about what snakes do at these rookeries and turn really, turn a really horrible situation into something that was, I think much, much better. And so to me, that's, um, that's what it's all about. That's what education is all about. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing those ladies again this summer with their babies in the same spot, same secret spot. <laughs> well, I'm glad you found a silver lining to this to bad situation. And I want to say, um, I think it was on, you have a blog, is that right? And I read a letter that you wrote to this individual who killed the snake. Um, and uh, yeah, that it stuck with me because, uh, you know, I'm often talking about snakes and, and, um, you know, I'm a, uh, you may or may not know, but I'm a very avid hunter and fisherman. Mm -hmm. and so I, I eat mostly game meat and, and, you know, kill many animals, but, um, but with snakes, first of all, they don't have like say a white tailed deer. There's years and years of research and understanding of their population biology and, how you can manage their populations. We don't have that level of understanding for snakes. I would argue in most or places for most species where we could even contemplate having some type of harvest. But, but my point uh, being is that I always really preach that concept. Like if there's a snake and it's in your house, then, you know, and you have kids or dogs, maybe there's a time to do something. And in many places there are services like the ones you provide um, you know, that can help you out with that. Um, but when you go into a natural area, into her home, as you mentioned with this, this, uh, gestating female and, and you kill them, I just, I, I just don't understand. It's like, a, um, yeah, it just, it just makes almost no sense to me. So no, I agree with you entirely. And again, the silver lining that came out of this was, most people around here, most people anywhere, wouldn't really bat an eye about the concept of a rattlesnake getting killed. It happens every day. But they did bat an eye when someone from out of town, because they were able to see him on a security camera leaving and determine that he was from out of town. Someone from out of town came to their brand new preserve and killed a snake in her home. And people here who normally wouldn't really care about rattlesnakes started to care. So 
to me, that was, that was wonderful. It was, you know, a way to kind of honor that snake's life and, and what she went through the, the, the horrible pain and suffering that she went to was, was, uh, and we also did, you know, it also inspired us to do a world snake day event there where hundred, over a hundred little kids came and got to meet Buzz and learn about snakes was, you know, happened about two weeks after um, this incident with the snake. And so, so many people learned about the beauty of rattlesnakes and how wonderful they are and how they should just be left alone and admired from a distance because of that snake. Well said. So did, uh, out of curiosity, did, uh, did anything end up happening to this, uh, individual who murdered the snake or they couldn't they couldn't find him they had determined that he was from bakersfield california and they put up photos on social media but they weren't able to locate him and even you know to be honest with you even if they had it it probably would have been something like trespassing or cruelty to animals because in california there is no you don't have to have a license to kill or capture rattlesnakes um at least not this species but the land conservancy, which owns the preserve, really did want to find him, wasn't able to. But again, I think that the press that it got did did the job on its own in terms of getting the word out. Well, great story. And um, how can people learn more about that? I mentioned, uh, I believe it's your blog, but how, how can people find you, whether they're interested in your lab as a potential student, um, interested in the snake services that you provide or, or just kind of uh, interested in, you know, following you and in, in your adventures through life? Absolutely. So um, my lab is called the Physiological Ecology of Reptiles Lab at Cal Poly. And so they can find us at Pearl, P-E-R-L dot Cal Poly dot E-D-U. And that's where they can download my publications for free and read about what we do, read about my graduate students. And then on social media, I'm fairly active, especially on Twitter, but I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can follow me personally at, at Snakey Mama. And you can follow Central Coast Snake Services at, at Coast Snake. Great. Well, thank you so much, Emily. It has been nice uh, talking with you, catching up a little bit. Um, so nice and- talking to you, too. And someday I'm going to get out there and see a big, fat indigo snake, Chris. It's my dream. Yeah, come on out, man. We have we uh, we have land uh, with indigo snakes on it, and we'll we'll take you out and show you something. So awesome! And I just wanted to thank the audience and remind everybody that snakes are animals, too, and it's a privilege to see one in the wild.